This morning we are resuming our studies in the book of James, and while it's easy to begin with a sentence like that, this book is all about truth in shoe leather. It's about dealing with life, as Josh was just praying about, in a broken world. It's about applying wisdom to the ways that we treat each other, to the ways that we navigate suffering in our own lives. So this is not theoretical, my brothers and sisters. This is real stuff. Now, as we are moving into our on-ramp, back into our studies, verse by verse, in the book of James, I want to review a little bit where we've been in this epistle. So I'm going to review a bit, and, and then I want to talk about the importance of today's passage, and then I'm going to talk about today's passage. And then after I talk about today's passage, I want to talk about what I told you about today's passage, and then I'm going to conclude by talking to you about that. This is, this is an important section of the book of James that Josh just read for us. I want to remind you that James, of course, was the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, he was a skeptic about Jesus' identity until Jesus appeared before him, resurrected from the dead. And then later, years later, James, this laborer from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, became the pastor of the Jerusalem church, literally the first church. You know, in the South, we have first church. I've got the, I go to the first church. Well, this was the first church. And when that church was scattered, James wrote this epistle to encourage believers in their faith. And this was, we believe, the first New Testament book to have been penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting that James never refers to Jesus as his brother, but he refers to himself as bondslave of Jesus Christ. In 1.1, he refers to Jesus in 2.1 is our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. And then over and over throughout the book, he uses the word Lord to connect Jesus to Lord, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. And, and let's be clear about what James is clear about. His human brother is our glorious Lord. And history tells us that James will die for Jesus' sake not many years after he penned these words. So as we Reimmerse ourselves into this epistle. I want to reach back to an idea that we talked about a few weeks ago, and that is the idea of watershed moments, those moments after which everything else in your life is going to be different. This Christmas, we began Advent by looking at the watershed moment in the life of Mary, that point of decision that determined the rest of her life when she said to the angel Gabriel, Behold, the bondservant of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. But before Mary, it was Joshua saying to the nation Israel, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. This is your watershed moment, Israel. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It was Daniel, a teenage captive in Babylonia, who, as the text says, made up his mind that he would not defile himself. And instead, he would serve the Lord no matter what it cost him. It was Isaiah saying, Lord, here am I, send me. 
which later became Isaiah's death sentence. But eternal life followed. It was Peter saying, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It was Paul on the Damascus Road saying, who are you, Lord? And hearing, I am Jesus. And Paul was never the same. And now, it's you and me. This is the challenge that we are facing today in this passage. This is our watershed passage. James has brought us as his readers to this moment. As Josh read these verses, I hope you weren't thinking that James is saying, okay, chapter 4, chapter 5, this is the next section, we're, 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 next paragraph, please, in verses 13 through 19, or through 18, we now have a separate essay on the topic of wisdom. No, he's been navigating here all along. First of all, this is closure from when James introduced the topic of wisdom back in chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Turn back there and look with me, if you will, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. The Greeks viewed wisdom as education, being skilled at logic and rhetoric. The Hebrews anchored in the Old Testament, and as you can see in the verses that we just read, viewed wisdom not as information only, but truth applied to life. It wasn't theoretical only. In fact, the Hebrew word for wisdom was used to refer to skill at an art or a craft. The artisans who worked on God's temple in the Old Testament were, were called wise workers because of their craftsmanship. And so the word came to mean skill at the art of living. Jesus was a skilled carpenter. He was skilled at his craft. He was wise. Rembrandt was wise in his paintings. Our worship team members are wise in their understanding of music and their craft. And so the word wisdom is skill at a craft, at the craft of living. And furthermore, the source of wisdom in the Bible is not education, as wonderful as that is. It's not natural brilliance or even common sense or even street smarts. The source of wisdom is not education. It's not natural ability. We just read in chapter 1, it is a gift of God. That's where wisdom comes from. And that gift, as we just read, is withheld from those who will not commit in faith that they will obey what they receive because they're double-minded. God, give me your wisdom and I'll decide whether or not I'm going to obey it. And God says, I don't think so. No. You have a foot in two worlds. You've got so much of the world in you that you enjoy the things of the flesh. You've got so much of the flesh in you that you enjoy the things of the world. You're double-minded. 
That's not the person who will receive God's wisdom. So here in today's passage, James is taking that idea and then closing the loop through the things that we've been studying so far. Second, James is consistently made the point throughout this book, and here's, this is important, wisdom is active. You've heard, the, heard us talk about this all the way through the book. Is wisdom is active, it's not passive. It's the testing of faith when you endure trials that you didn't see coming, but here they are. It's not favoring the rich over the poor. It's persevering under trials. It's being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. It's not just being a hearer, but a doer of the word as well, looking intently into God's word and abiding by it. It's bridling your tongue. It's helping the vulnerable, the widows and the orphans, people who can't help you back so that your motives have to be pure. Third, James then reinforces the outcome in chapter 2. Wisdom that comes from faith will produce good works, not to earn God's grace, but because we possess God's grace. And that's true for everybody who's saved, whether it's Abraham, the exalted father of the nation, or a lowly prostitute like Rahab. Those are his illustrations that we read in chapter 2. Abraham and Rahab had very different backgrounds, friends. But both entrusted their lives to God, and it showed from the choices that they made when they faced those watershed moments with choose this day whom you will serve. And by the way, the genealogy of Jesus was also the genealogy of James, right? So it began with Abraham and included Rahab for James too. Fourth, and you're sitting there thinking, I've lost what one, two, and three were all about. First, second, and third. Okay, let me remind you what those points are about. What, what I'm, James has been talking about wisdom, about skill and the art of living. But how is it described? We've been talking about how it's been described all the way through chapter 1, chapter 2, and through now chapter 3. So that's, that's what these points have been about, to try to uh, have a kind of an extended on-ramp. So fourth, the words in verses 13 through 18 connect us to the idea of a, being a teacher in chapter 3, verse 1. It goes back to the first part of this chapter, which then became a challenge for all believers on how we use our tongues, our speech, in verses 2 through 12. But what I'm getting at is, is everything that we've said so far, it's all tied together. It's all a part of the same thing. Uh, so I hope that made sense. So here we are at chapter 3, verse 13. Everything that James has said so far in this epistle is part of the challenge of these verses. And these verses bring all of us as readers centuries later to our watershed challenge. How am I going to live my life going forward? Maybe you have the great background like Abraham. Maybe you have an awful background, perhaps like Rahab. Doesn't matter. How am I going to choose going forward? Am I going to follow earthly wisdom? Or am I going to follow the wisdom that's from above? 
not just what do I say I believe, but will I show my faith in action from this point going forward? Now, as we examine our text, I don't know if you like outlines. I like outlines. I really do. So verse 13 is the challenge to godly wisdom. Verses 14 through 16, description of wisdom from below. Verses 17 and 18, description of wisdom from above. So that's how it all fits together. Look at verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? And among the Jews, the word wise became a technical term for a teacher, which kind of makes sense. And understanding had to do with special training in a subject area to teach others. So this connects us back to verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers. But it's clear that James is not finishing off an in-service faculty training seminar. Verses 2 through 12 give seven illustrations of how our speech ought or ought not to be. James is telling you and me that what we say should match God's word. And that's why James continues, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. I love that phrase, in the gentleness of wisdom. Gentleness is not passive. It's not subservient. The idea behind the word is strength under control. The word was used to describe a horse that submitted to the bridle. The horse is stronger than its rider, but it remains under control. And in this case, under the control of wisdom, applying God's word to life. And, and this phrase, the gentleness of wisdom, recognizes that there is a difference between intellectual ability and wisdom. Because sadly, some very smart people live like fools. The gentleness of wisdom recognizes that even if you are smarter than somebody else in your area of expertise, you don't have to become arrogant, but instead remain humble. And that humility, that gentleness of wisdom, is evidence of your faith to those around you who know how smart you are. Now, the ability to do this is a gift. In chapter 1, it is a gift from God. And here in verse 17, James says it comes from above. So James is saying, are you skilled at the art of living? Then show that by the way that you apply truth to life. And just to help you understand, what I'm going to do is I'm going to contrast earthly wisdom with heavenly wisdom. Everything that you do, every life choice you make, is evidence of either earthly or heavenly wisdom. Now, earthly wisdom is described in verses 14 through 16 as this human, foolish, self-centered determination to live a spiritually self-destructive life. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Friends, this is just dismal, isn't it? Isn't that depressing? 
Look at verse 14. If you have bitterness, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, not just jealousy, but bitter jealousy, the same word that was used in verse 11 of water that was rancid, that, that was defiled. The other term, selfish ambition, you have that bitter jealousy, that selfish ambition. That word was, was used, it's, it's, well, hold on. The word selfish ambition was one word in Greek, and it was used, hold on, and I'm going to read you the definition from the lexicon. Electioneering, putting yourself forward with a partisan spirit. It was used in Philippians 1 of the preachers in Rome who were so jealous of Paul that they were trying, as Paul said, to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Can you imagine political infighting among people who are on the same side? <laughs> well, we know that wouldn't happen today. But with Paul, he was talking about church infighting. So James exhorts all of us, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. And the warning is, whether you're a teacher or you just know stuff about the Bible, any arrogance puts the lie to what you do know. And what it means is that you value your own knowledge of the truth more than you value the truth about which you are arrogant. You are double-minded. Now, even, so James exhorts us, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Even though godly wisdom is for all of us, the application to pastors and teachers of the truth is still here too. For any person, in any pulpit, in any church, in any state, in any country, this warning should be very personal. You agree? Okay. Do pastors ever get jealous of other pastors and have selfish ambition? No, we're, we're too holy a group for that, right? I'll come back. Yeah, what? <laughs> I'm just glad you all didn't get up and walk out. <laughs> I'll come back to that in a moment. Verse 15, this wisdom, and the way he describes it kind of puts air quotes around the word wisdom, so-called wisdom. He's about to describe what it's not and what it is, and neither one of them is good, is not that which comes down from above. That's what chapter 1 was about. But is earthly, natural, demonic. These three terms are in climactic order of opposition to God. Earthly, the contrast is very strong. It's worldly wisdom bound to this world as opposed to being from above. Natural, not just only earthly, but unsaved earthly. James's brother Jude, also the brother of Jesus, used the same word to describe people who did not have the Holy Spirit. Paul uses it the same way. But the climax of the three terms is the word demonic. James already has referred to theologically accurate demons, right? Back in 2.19. The people that James is describing don't even stop to think that they're not living out the truth of God's word, but they're actually living out Satan's will, not God's will. He says in 16, for where jealousy... And selfish ambition, the same two terms we talked about a moment ago, 
Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. The word disorder was used in the Gospel of Luke to describe a political uprising. And it can mean either turmoil within a church or between churches. James has experienced both. And I want to say something here that I hope is not far off topic. But since James is talking about all of this together, and he's just finished a long discourse about how we speak to one another and about one another, the tongue. Satan would love it. Satan would absolutely love it. If when brothers and sisters at Signal Mountain Bible Church disagree about something, we treat one another the way that the world treats one another. He would love it if we did that. That is gossiping about the other person, gathering people to my side of the conflict, never sitting down to talk to or pray with the other brother or sister. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, and it may not always be possible, but so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. You, you, be the peacemaker. You, demonstrate the gentleness of wisdom. It's in verse 13. So Satan would love it if we fuss at each other. I'll tell you something else Satan would love. He loves it when people from one gospel-centered church diminish or slander another gospel-centered church. We have some, some sister churches here on Signal Mountain uh, that we disagree with on doctrinal issues different from theirs. But they are just wonderful. And we have had projects with several of them. Uh, honestly, to tell you the truth, I'm, I'm kind of amazed that the way the Bible describes us with fallen minds, futile imaginations, and finiteness, that we agree on about 95% <laughs> uh, across the body of Christ. That's pretty remarkable if you think about it. it it's quite amazing. It's very, in fact, it's astonishing. But one example of a disagreement that we have, uh, and I'm going to bring this one into a point here, has to do with uh, baptism. We hold to believer's baptism. Right? Uh, not infant baptism. We don't baptize babies, but we do dedicate them. And two weeks ago, uh, I dedicated my grandson, William, uh, right here. Uh, my daughter and her husband, Although they live they're in a wonderful church in New York, it's a church that insists that if they dedicate a baby, they have to baptize it. And so Rebecca said, no, I, I, and, and Steve, no, we, we want to do it here. And, uh, and so we, we did that. But they're, they're in a very good church, and we are very thankful uh, for that. My Knoxville grandson is a believer in Jesus, and he's also in a church that baptizes infants only. And, uh, um, I'm sorry, well, let me back up. He's a believer, and he wants me to baptize him here. And uh, Beth, my daughter, asked their pastor, would it be a problem, would you have a problem with that if my dad baptizes Jack uh, in his church? And the pastor said, 
only if you don't invite me. I love it that my grandchildren are in a church where their pastor would say that. I love it. Some of you know that one of my best friends was Dr. Marshall St. John. And uh, Marshall was a pastor at Wayside Presbyterian Church across the mountain a bit. He played cello in the Chattanooga Symphony and uh, was educating me in classical music. Uh, he would tell me which CD to buy. And uh, then we would talk about it after I bought it and listened to it. And he gave, gave me some information. And he played for my daughter Rebecca's wedding right here. Uh, and when I was teaching uh, theology in college, I would invite Marshall to come and uh, lecture in those classes where, uh, for example, of covenant and Reformed theology, where I didn't hold those things to the extent that he did. And uh, so I would have him come up and, uh, and teach those classes and interact with the students. And it was just a lot of fun. Um, we, we, I, I always teased him about having biblical socks hanging out of his theological suitcase. And he always teased me about having the wrong suitcase. <laughs> we had a good time. We had a good time. We were, we, we, we were dear friends, and we, we had kind of figured that we'd, we'd be the guys in the 90s at McDonald's talking about the new books that were coming out and arguing back and forth and laughing. But 11 years ago, Marshall's cancer returned, and it was fast. And I was sitting with him at his bed, and he asked me to conduct his... Sorry, didn't see that coming. He asked me to conduct his funeral, um, only he said, uh, but Gary, I want you to do it in Chinese. <laughs> his, his wife was from China, kept his sense of humor, and uh, <clears throat> so I conducted his funeral. Signal Mountain Presbyterian Church over here called and, and said, why don't you use our sanctuary? There are going to be so many people, and there were. It was so gracious of them. So what I'm getting at is this was the body of Christ grieving together. Are there things at those other churches that can be criticized? Of course. Just like there are here. We are broken people, saved by grace. We're all on a journey making sure that we've got that 5% right. But if someone starts gossiping about one of our sister churches to you, my suggestion is that you tell them that you don't want to hear it. Romans 14, verse 4, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That even applied to those crazy pastors at Rome who were trying to cause Paul distress in his imprisonment. Doesn't living out the gentleness of wisdom sound wonderful? Doesn't it? Well, verses 17 and 18 describe the heavenly wisdom, but the wisdom from above, this is, this is the good stuff. 
is first pure and peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Almost every word in these two verses has its counterpart in the sermon that James, I believe, has memorized. The Sermon on the Mount. Let's dig in. Verse 17, by contrast, but, in contrast to verse 15, that wisdom which is not from above, that so-called wisdom, in contrast to that, the wisdom, uh, wisdom from below, that is, the wisdom from above is, and he gives seven characteristics in this verse. First, here's the one he marks off first. It's set off by this word. The other six are grouped together separately. First, pure. The word pure describes the inner quality of being pure from carnality, pure from uh, uh, clean, holy, modest, chaste, not driven by self-inflated, self-centered motivation, but motivated by God's will. That's what the idea of pure is. Your orientation is that you want to receive the wisdom from above for the purpose of applying it, not for the purpose of considering it as an option. So, first of all, it is pure. Then, he says, which introduces the other six qualities, and those are qualities that, can, that work their way out. So this one is an inner quality. Then the next six are more outwardly on display, and you can see them and how the way people live. I'm going, to, I'm going to give them to you as bullet points. The peaceable, instead of causing disputes, you settle them. You're not motivated by my rights. Gentle, he's already used this term a number of times. You treat people with kindness, not trying to one-up the person in front of you so that you'll look good to the person beside you. Reasonable, and if the lexicographers are right about capturing the nuances of this term, it refers to treating people below you over whom you have some measure of authority. You treat people below you with kindness and understanding, making allowances for their weaknesses. Full of mercy and good fruits. This, is, this refers to treating people above you with appropriate respect and trying to understand where they're coming from when you disagree. The next term is unwavering. There's just no good English word to translate this term. But it, it's the idea of treating people the same, without favoritism, not wavering back and forth. And, you know, I like this guy better, or I like, don't like this guy at all, but you treat them the same. You're, you, you're, you're, you're kind and wise in your dealings with them uh, equally. And then without hypocrisy. This is the, the Hippocrates was the Greek actor on the stage who wore a mask pretending to be somebody other than who he actually was you don't pretend to be someone else in order to get something none of these six qualities are theoretical they are faith in shoe leather that this is what wisdom from above looks like it's not theoretical it's real and one last outcome is in verse 18 the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. People who live out God's wisdom don't sow conflict. That's not what they, they sow. They sow peace. They sow the fruit of the Spirit. The idea here is that sowing wisdom, sowing wisdom seeds produces a wisdom crop. 
produce, uh, produces a harvest of righteousness. But the climate has to be right for that crop. It has to be sown not in anger, but in peace. Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers. If you'll, in fact, if you want to look back negatively to chapter 1, verse 20 of James, the anger of man does not produce the crop of righteousness, the righteousness of God. Here, peace produces the harvest of righteousness. Just all ties together. So, wow, that's the passage. This is my challenge, and it's your challenge. It's right in front of us. Everything that you do, every life choice you make, is evidence of either earthly or heavenly wisdom. Remember, wisdom is not education, it's not stuff that you know. It's anchored in truth. It's not intellectual ability. It's not street smarts. It's skill in the art of living under the authority of God's word. It is received from God when you ask for it. But asking for the purpose not of gaining information to consider it as one option alongside others, but rather asking God for the purpose so that you can live it out, living it out. Not all Christians are equally smart, but all Christians can be wise. Okay, I've explained this passage or tried to. What you do with it is up to you. You and I are both accountable for truth, aren't we? I'm going to conclude by reading somebody else's sermon. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the conclusion of someone else's sermon, which I'm convinced James had memorized. Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears, says Jesus, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, yet it <coughs> did not fall. We've been founded on a rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like the foolish man. Not wise, not the wisdom from above. This is what's from earthly and from below. The foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came. And the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I ask, Lord, that we would uh, apply the truth of your word to our lives and treat each, one, each, uh, each other in the gentleness of wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. Our benediction is an exhortation that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Gentile Christians on the coast of Turkey. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is.
Grace and peace. You're dismissed.